Faith Talk 570 WTBN Pinellas Park. Online at letstalkfaith.com. A service of the Salem Media. Versions of this hour have been pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. We need to think through the whole issue, or at least some of the issues of, of change. What, what issues are there? And uh, maybe you haven't thought about this. But number one, this is a pit that many Christians fall into, this whole issue of change. They don't like sin. Here's what happens. They don't like sin in their lives. They see sin in their lives, and uh, they, want, they, they pray about it. And they ask God to change them. But you know what? They don't see any changes. Maybe this is your experience. You see things in your life that you detest. You want them out. You pray about it. You ask God to change you, but there's no change. Why? Indeed. Why is that? When we hate the sin we see in ourselves and we ask God to free us from it, why doesn't he just take it away? Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We're studying the characteristics of a biblical revival, and our text is in Nehemiah chapter 9. A biblical revival is a personal revival, and there are four steps to a personal revival. Pastor Steve has already covered some of them. We've seen that they involve confession, reflection on God's compassion, and in our last session we considered accepting God's discipline. Let's talk about that one some more before we move on to the fourth step, which is committing ourselves to change. Here's Pastor Steve. Remember Joseph Joseph, who had rotten brothers who sold him into slavery. If it wasn't for the interception of one brother, he would have been killed. They were jealous of him. They were rotten. And at the end, uh, of when, when Jacob dies, the father dies, uh, these guys say, you know, now that our father's out of the way, Joseph might kill us for what we did to him. So we, and they actually go and lie to him. Our father said, uh, before he died, of course, you ought to treat us well. And they're lying and scheming again. And Joseph makes that great declaration at the end of Genesis. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And if I could paraphrase Joseph when he must have been thinking, you rotten guys meant it. You wicked brothers of mine, you meant it for evil. I've known that all along. But God meant it for good. And then Joseph, in his mercy and compassion, said, I'm not going to harm you. I'm going to treat you well. God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. So you may be going through pain. You may be going through difficulty. But God means it for good, not for evil. And you know what? You might, you might think, well, then why did he allow this horrible thing to happen to me? It was evil that happened to me. Uh, God allowed that, but for your good. And God will deal with whoever has done evil to you because he is a righteous God. He is a just God. And people will not get away with their sin. You and I will not get away with our sin. God will deal, and he is the avenger, so you you leave it with him, but God means it for good because it's pain that brings us closer to Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 says that, that God disciplines those whom he loves. And when he loves you, he disciplines you for your own good to produce righteousness and holiness. If you're not disciplined by God, if you can get away with anything, then you're, you're not a believer. You're an illegitimate child. When you're in the family of God, he comes down hard on those who he loves in a, in a family kind of way. So his discipline is designed to make you Christ-like in character. It's an expression of his love. 
So you want, you want revival in your life? You want to get back to where you should be? Accept God's discipline. Don't fight it. Don't hold a grudge against him. If you've been doing that, he, you don't need to forgive him. You need to ask him to forgive you. That's a rotten attitude that needs to be dealt with because God is always, always right. If you don't understand God, it's because you don't understand God. It's not because there's anything wrong with him. As for God, the Bible says his ways are just. He's perfect. So that brings us to the fourth step in a personal revival. Because once you realize how much God loves you, how much he cares about you, and that his purpose in life is to conform you to the image of Christ, then you want to recommit yourself to him in obedience. And that is the fourth point and the fourth step to a personal revival. Confess your sin to God, reflect on God's compassion, accept God's discipline, and finally, commit yourself to change. Commit yourself to change. Look at verse 38 of Nehemiah 9, if you will. Now, because of all of this, all this that we're going through, all our sin that we've accumulated for all these years, God, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. The people and the leaders made a promise in writing to obey the Mosaic Covenant. Obey the Mosaic Law. In other words, they renewed their covenant vows. Just like a couple who's been married for many years, say, you know, we've been married 40, 50 years, we want to renew our vows. That's what they did. They got back to what they were supposed to be doing. That's, That's what they're saying here. Now, the terms, the specific terms of the covenants are mentioned in chapter 10, and we'll, we'll delve into that a little bit this morning. But the truth here is timeless. The way back to God is commit yourself to change, to change the way you, you should have been all along, to change. If you look with me, Revelation chapter 2, I, I think, hold your place in Nehemiah 9 and 10. But in Revelation chapter 2, the Lord is dealing with various churches uh, and most of them need to repent. So the church, chapter 2, uh, verse 1, he's speaking to the church in Ephesus and they, they needed to repent. They, they had gone astray. But notice what he says to them, verses 4 and 5, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Now they were very active. They were very involved in ministry, but they had left their first love. Remember, therefore, he says, this is the solution from where you have fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and I'll remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. In other words, get back to obedience out of love and devotion. Get back to doing what what you did before you left the Lord in attitude. Is he your first love? You need to get back. You need to get back. After all, the reason you need revival in the first place is because you didn't change as you should have. Get back to where you should be. That's what the Israelites are saying. Lord, we want to go back to the Mosaic Covenant. We want to renew our commitment to change and to obedience. Now, I want, to, I want us to think about that this morning, about change. And before we look at the specific changes that the Israelites took, and we need to take, we need to think through the whole issue, or at least some of the issues of, of change. What, what issues are there? And uh, maybe you haven't thought about this. But number one, this is a pit that many Christians fall into. This whole issue of change. They don't like sin. Here's what happens. They don't like sin in their lives. They see sin in their lives. And uh, they, want, they, they pray about it. 
And they ask God to change them. But you know what? They don't see any changes. Maybe this is your experience. You see things in your life that you detest. You want them out. You pray about it. You ask God to change you, but there's no change. Why? Why is that? You're sorrowful for your sin. And you accept God's dealings with you. And you want to change, but you don't. Why? Well, let me illustrate it this way. I read recently about a man who always ended his prayers the same way. Here's how he ended it. And Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life. Clean the cobwebs out of my life. Every prayer that that he prayed, at least publicly, was like that. Well, one of the members of of this man's church, uh, the church that he attended, uh, became so weary of hearing week after week the same insincere request, because he saw no changes in the man's life. Now, the next time he heard the man pray, Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life, he just interrupted the prayer and, and with his own petition. And while you're at it, Lord, kill the spider. So he just said, while you're at it, kill the spider. You see, um, if you're really serious about change, you'll do more than pray about it. You'll kill whatever is affecting you. You'll deal with it. You will make the changes. See, God's not going to make the changes in your life. He'll give you the power to do that. He'll give you the grace to do that. Always. You have a divine nature. You have the Holy Spirit. You have His grace, He says, is sufficient. God's not going to make the change. You've got to kill the spider. This is the great principle of Ephesians 4. This is the whole issue of sanctification. Paul says, put off and put on. Put off whatever is wrong and put on whatever is right. We can do it. But I think there are some people, some Christians, who mysteriously think that if they pray a prayer and they go to sleep at night, they're going to wake up different. It doesn't work that way. That's not the the New Testament or Old Testament view of sanctification. God's word calls you to make the change. And the change is. And that's very important. You have a responsibility. Don't think something's going to happen in a magical fashion. It doesn't work like that. So you see, what this man was doing is just what, what a lot of us are doing. We pray about it, Lord, do this, do that. But God says, wait a minute, I'll, get, I'll give you the grace, you make the changes. Which leads us to a second issue about, uh, and question really about change. And this is very basic. Is it right to make a promise to God? The Jewish people made a promise. They wrote their names on it. It, it was a pledge. Is it right to do that? These people were so serious about the changes that they knew needed to be made, they just made a formal promise, an agreement in writing, a covenant to obey the laws of the Mosaic law. They signed their names to it. In fact, look at chapter 10, verse 1. Now, in the sealed document were the names of, the the first name there was Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hekeliah and Zedekiah. And I will spare you my pronunciation of the rest of these names. But... From verses 2 through 27, there are 84 people, including Nehemiah from verse 1, 84 people who uh, put their names on this list. And we we jump down, we see verse 28 and 29. Now, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding. So one one little children, those who had knowledge and understanding, those who knew what they were doing, put their names on this. Verse 29 says, they are joining with their kinsmen, the nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servants, and to keep and observe all the commandments 
of God, our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. Now, the list is headed by Nehemiah. It includes also the names of priests, Levites, community leaders, and the people meant business with God to the point that they made this was an oath. It was a vow to God, and they actually took upon themselves a curse, probably the cursings of the, uh, of the law, which if you obeyed, there was blessing. If you didn't obey, there was cursing. And that's why they, were, they went into captivity in the first place. But they took upon themselves a curse if anyone failed to obey it. Now, what does this say to us today about a commitment to change? Because some people, some believers have a real prom- problem with making a vow or a promise to God. And um, the reason they have this, this problem is, is because they, they don't want to make a pledge because they distrust their human ability to keep a promise. And they don't want to make a promise to God that they're not going to keep. So the solution is keep it. That's the solution. But they don't want to break a promise to God. And you know, I can, I can understand that. I can understand that, but I think they're terribly wrong. I think they're wrong. And I'll tell you why. First of all, God gives us the grace to keep our word. Paul said, and I want to read this to you, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, he said, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, but not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul said, I worked hard, I I worked harder than others, but it really wasn't just me. It was the grace of God giving me the strength to do this. So, uh, first of all... uh, God gives us grace. And this is a very relevant problem because I remember several years ago, uh, a young man in our church who was going to stand with his wife and family, they're going to do child dedication. He said to me, uh, and when we have a child dedication, we ask for, for, it's a pledge. We ask a promise that you make publicly that you're going to obey the Lord. You're going to raise your children to love him. You're going to give them the best that you could of school and church and so forth. And um, this one young man said, uh, I, I would prefer you change the word, it's my intention to do this, rather than promise. You see, he didn't want to say, I was promising God. Because see, if you don't promise God, if you promise God and then you break it, you're in big trouble with God. So he didn't want to do that. It was kind of a, an out. But the main reason that this, is, that this is really silly to think that you don't make a pledge to God is because uh, that's very inconsistent. In life, we make promises. In life. We make pledges. We make promises and pledges and other things. Uh, those of you who are married, you ever make, take a marriage vow? I know that in our day and age, a lot of people don't think about that or there wouldn't be so much divorce. But a vow, uh, a marriage vow is what people take. Nobody says, at least I don't know of anybody, says, you know, I really can't make a promise. It's just an intention that I'm going to love you. Uh, they make a promise. How about a church covenant? Those of you who are members of this church, have agreed to the church covenant. In case you didn't know what it was, you ought to look at your constitution. There is a church covenant. You agreed to that. Even becoming a Christian is is really making a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. There's no such thing, I'm going to accept him as as Savior, but I don't think I'm going to obey him. Now, if you're going to obey him in salvation, that's a, a, a first step in a commitment to follow him all of your life. You made a promise. How about any of you uh, sign on the dotted line that you're going to make a promise of uh, house payments? Oh, see, we don't have a problem with that. We may get a little nervous about that, but we don't have a problem with that. You're just promising to, to do something. Well, why is it that we can make promises to people? I mean, if you can make a promise to a mortgage company, 
In a bank, certainly you can make a a pledge and a promise to obey what God's word says. So really, a promise is necessary because it's a commitment that you will be prone not to break. This is not a New Year's resolution. It's a promise to God. Now, having established the fact that a revival involves a commitment to change, not simply praying about it and not simply having good intentions. Well, I plan to change. I'm praying about it. No, it's a commitment that you are going to change. What are the areas that need to be changed? What what areas are affected? When when God deals with you in revival and you get back with him, uh, what are the areas that need to be adjusted and, and you need to change? Well, the first one is found in verse 30. And this is all we're going to look at this morning, but don't, don't tune me out. Actually, everything was, was to bring you to this point. The first change that takes place when you get right with God is marriage and the home. Notice verse 30 of chapter 10. And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. The first area of life that they promise, the Jewish people promise to change is the area of marriage. They promise not to intermarry with the non-Jewish people around them. Now, this is not racial prejudice. In fact, it's not a racial issue at all. It's not snobbishness. Because, and, and in case some of you think that, well, it's a racial issue, I still think it was. No, the Jewish people, and maybe you don't realize this, the Jewish people had always contained other people within them. Do you realize that Moses was married to an Ethiopian woman? Do you realize that Rahab and Ruth, though they were believers, were non-Jews who were ancestors, physical ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible does not forbid interracial marriages. Bible does not forbid that, but it does forbid marrying a non-believer. That, that's the issue. That's the issue. The issue uh, about intermarriage here and in other places was never racial, but religious. And I want to show you that. If you look at Exodus 34, Exodus, the second book in the Bible, this is very important that you understand this. Important for you parents to understand this. Important for those of you who hope to get married someday that you understand this. Important that you actually get this tape and give, give it to other people who maybe aren't here today but need to hear this. We often speak about the Christian home. I'm going to speak about um, marrying a non-Christian. And we, we often don't stress that enough. Or not, I should say, not marrying a non-Christian. Exodus 34, notice verse 12. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land in which you are going, that is the Canaanites, lest it become a snare in your midst, but rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. And ashram were were wooden symbols of a female deity. That's what it is. For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the lands, and they play the harlot with the, and they play the harlots with their gods, and sacrifice to their gods become, and someone invite you to eat of their sacrifice, and you take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with your, with their gods, and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. Do you understand what he was saying? Do you understand what he was talking about? Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4 say basically the same thing. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they, shall, uh, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. The reason God said not to marry a pagan was to keep his people from going after pagan gods. 
That's the reason. In other words, to marry a pagan was to be in danger of wandering from the Jewish faith. The Jewish people were to be distinctly different, even as believers today are to be distinctly different. We're not to be like the world. That is precisely why a Christian must never, ever, ever marry a non-Christian. Because rather than the Christian having a positive effect and influence on the non-Christian, it doesn't work that way. The unbeliever, more times than not, will bring you down and you will find yourself compromising the word of God. Here's the basic pattern. Doesn't always happen like this, but here's the basic pattern. And, And listen, listen to me. What I'm giving to you is wisdom from the word of God. First, if you marry a non-Christian, there will be constant conflicts. Conflicts over all sorts of things. How to raise children. You're not going to agree on that. You're not going to agree on on that. How to spend money. How to save money. How to use money. Business ethics. He or she doesn't have the same ethics that you have. Church involvement. Oh, let's go to church. I don't want to go to church. Well, you did before we were married. Yeah, sure. Good impression. Then after conflicts, there will be compromise in some areas. And you know what? You'll just give in. Eventually, you'll just give in. You're so tired of fighting. You're just going to compromise with the attitude. I know it's not right, but what, what, what can I do? What can I do? Church involvement will, will dwindle. will get lower. And then finally after conflicts and compromise, will be complete conformity. He or she will just wear you down. To keep peace in the family, you will not take a stand anymore. You'll just give up trying to fight your your spouse. Now you may say and think, and there are a lot of naive people who think this way, well, it won't happen to me. Not me. I know better than that. Oh, really? The wisest man on the face of the earth was Solomon, who knew better. All you have to do is read Proverbs, and he knew better. But it happened to him in second or rather first Kings. This is what Solomon. This is what it is said of Solomon, who knew better and was wiser than any of us here. The wisest man on the earth. It says in first Kings 11, it said now Solomon, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you, for you shall surely, they will surely turn your heart away uh, after their God. Solomon held fast to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David, his father, had been. Now, David had some difficulty in his life, but his heart did not stray from the Lord. Solomon's did, and it was because of marrying non-believers. And he knew better than that. So don't think that, oh, I know better. It won't happen to me. Uh, You read Proverbs and the wisdom of Solomon. If it happened to him, it will surely happen to you. It won't happen to me. You ever notice that warning labels just don't seem to work? Several years ago, two men were electrocuted in a substation near us because they ignored the warning signs and climbed the fence to try to catch some wild parakeets. And how many countless lives have been destroyed by the optimism syndrome that says, I can take drugs and not get hooked, or I can drink and drive without killing someone? 
The same goes for Christians marrying unbelievers. It virtually never ends well, but people in love think that they're the ones who will beat the astronomical odds. Why do believers often defy God's warnings? Pastor Steve will have more on that subject on the next Verse by Verse as he continues teaching from Nehemiah chapter 9 about the characteristics of a biblical revival. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you'd like to visit Lakeside, the address is 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. To get service times, call 727-441-1714 or visit Lakeside's website, lakesidechapel.com. That's lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. Verse by Verse is a ministry of Lakeside but we depend in large part on the generous gifts of our listeners in order to pay for airtime and other production costs. If you'd like to help with those expenses, we'd be grateful. You can give by phone at the number I just mentioned, 727-441-1714. Or you can give online on the giving page at Verse. 